Welcome to Meaning What. I'm your host, Mason Hirschnell. On today's episode, we discuss Magnum Photography, the allegations against photographer David Allen Harvey, and what photography's own Me Too moments can teach us about the ways that we consume and understand photography and art in general. Hey, Sean. Hello. Hi, Chris. Hello. So we are back in my realm of art today. I wish it was under better circumstances or that we were talking about something a little bit more fun. But this is a important subject that I feel like isn't upfront enough. It isn't getting the attention that it should be getting. And I, I feel like just based on my conversations with you two, that it's it's a worthwhile conversation to have and to, to make people aware of. So today we're going to be talking about Magnum Photography, which is, and we'll get into this in a minute, it is the sort of primo street and photojournalist photography organization. If you think of a famous photographer who photographs in, in the wider world, um, who does street photography or who is a photojournalist, they're probably a member of Magnum. And we're going to be we're going to be talking about Magnum specifically in light of some recent allegations um, of sexual misconduct against one of their star photographers, and how Magnum itself has um, handled it or failed to handle it. Some of the mechanisms around that that allowed this situation to happen, and then what that tells us about the place of photography in cultural wider and and what it tells us about how we sort of deal with these situations when they are not, when they happen in places that are important and mediums that are important to our daily lives, but that we don't necessarily think of every day. Let's start by introducing everybody to Magnum. Yeah, what is Magnum? Magnum was founded in 1947 by a group of photographers, one of which was Henri Cartier-Bresson, who sort of wrote the book on street and candid photography, as it were, the decisive moment, the rule of thirds. A lot of those ideas come from him or were expanded on by him. It's notable he wasn't in the room when they decided to found Magnum, but his name is on it and it kind of got attached. So since then, um, Magnum has grown as a collective. That's the important thing about it. It is not central... There's no like corporate body. They have a board. They have a set of guidelines and, and they vote and who gets to be a part of it. There's a little bit of structure there, but it mostly operates as a cooperative sort of group. It's decentralized. Magnum is the photographers who make it. In the photo world, particularly for those of us who are street photographers, Magnum is the ultimate symbol of success. The Magnum photographers are the cream of the crop. Everybody who any of us care about just about have gone through Magnum. Most of them are still members. And while Magnum itself doesn't do anything, right, it it collects books, it sells prints, and it is sort of a way of networking. But it, it sort of operates more as this like status symbol. It is a clear delineation that you've made it as a photographer when you become a Magnum photographer. 
and photographers who are a part of Magnum, like what kind of publications or what kind of news outlets are they usually, is their work usually seen in? Number one, it's photojournalists. So major news organizations and documentary photographers, National Geographic and BBC and those sorts of folks. Magnum's image is the photojournalist. That's sort of the focus of of it, and that is where a lot of the most recognizable photographers sort of fall in. But it also includes a lot of people who are just considered like street photographers in the art sense who have published monographs and that sort of thing. So my initial question, I don't know if you can answer it, maybe in just your perspective from broad terms, is why, if it is this influential, is it that nebulous structure existence-wise? I don't have a solid answer on that. I My suspicion is that it's the nature of the type of people who are part of it. Um, mm-hmm. It's all. It was also founded that way of like, it's a network and a lot of these folks are working for larger corporations, whether they are directly employed or they are contracting as photographers. Um, and so there's some appeal there, right. Of just being a part of something without having to make it money or, or anything like that. But it, the best way to think of it, the way that I think of it is that it operates sort of like a fraternity, right? Like, Oh boy. (laughs) Right. Yeah. It is the order of, great street photographers and great photojournalists cult hmm. no but it has <laughs> it has some cult sort of worship right like when you discover magnum as a young photographer who has an interest in street photography and or documentary or photojournalism like it is the beacon at the top of the hill right like it is it is the thing that you strive for you know, it's like Broadway for a, a musical theater kid or, or or Hollywood for an actor or, you know, Nashville for a country singer, right? Like it is, it's the thing that, that you look at and you go, if I ever... One day. One, one day, day, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Once I get there, I'll have made it. I'll right. show you high school kids that didn't like me. <laughs> exactly, right. <laughs> Right. This organization you've never heard of. And that's sort of the funny thing about it, too, right, is that it is it's weirdly influential in that all of these photographers that you've heard of or that you've seen, we should say. Right. Like if you have seen photography, you've seen Magnum photographers. They are members and they are united through it. But if you aren't a photographer, I think that it's a pretty safe bet that you don't know about it Mm -hmm. because it doesn't exert that much influence over you directly. But if even if somebody doesn't know what Magnum is, they still have more likely than not experienced work through Magnum, through through its various channels and just the wide connectivity that the organization has through Time Magazine when that's still around and National Geographic and all the other big <laughs> names for uh, photojournalism. Yeah, photojournalism, documentary photography. Yeah, and it's important to note too that it is an incredibly diverse collective, right? Mm-hmm. And I think part of that is because it is decentralized. It represents people from all over the world. They are overwhelmingly male, although that is beginning to shift finally. But they come from all sorts of 
different backgrounds and different places, and they make very different work. I pulled up the list here uh, just to pull some names, just for kind of a sample of, of wide-ranging. You have people like Elliot Erwitt, who was a hugely influential street photographer in the 60s and 70s and 80s, shot like classic street photography, black and white, same area as Cartier-Bresson. And then you have somebody like Beek de Poudre, who is a contemporary female photographer from Belgium who makes like pretty raw, gritty stuff that reminds me a little bit of the photography coming out of New York in the 1980s like that sort of grungy, like focused on one person. You know, you have hardcore journalists and you have straight artists and you have documentarians and people like Steve McCurry, who took probably the most famous National Geographic cover photograph, which is the Afghan woman um, with green eyes that was just titled Afghan Girl. Came out in 1984, I think hugely influential. Martin Parr is a member of it. And his work is very funny and very like not documentary. It's it's like social commentary. So it it is this sort of wide ranging thing and, and it's also kind of shapeless in, in that way too. That it if you photograph the human condition and you are a Magnum photographer, you are an authority on that type of photography. So, like, my question is, like, compared to other forms of media that are also similarly influential and just kind of part of our everyday lives and everything, is that there, it feels like, specifically photojournalism, there's a lack of general public knowledge or glamorization of the process with which you get to the product. Like, we know certain directors' names in Hollywood. We know composers, more some of them, the, at least the ones that are big or influential. And I feel like we don't really know that about photojournalism. So do you think part of that has to do with the kind of decentralization of Magnum and the ephemerality of it? Or do you think it's just many things at play? It's kind of a chicken and an egg thing, right? right. Um, and like my semi-comedic answer to this is that it is that it is because of the kind of people that are photographers right <laughs> at least in my experience we are the kind of people who prefer to have that little extra disconnection right or or that little bit of freedom there's an idea that that runs through at least academic photography which is that for its, its entire existence Photography and the people who have taken it seriously have been fighting for it to be a art form, for it to be considered an art form, right? It began as a, a way to get around having to hand draw stuff and a scientific tool to document. When it became an art form, it was mostly about sort of copying ways of painting. And then Stieglitz in particular comes along and says, well, maybe it can be its own thing, right? And at every era, it has sort of been fighting to be recognized as like a formal fine art form. And in hindsight, we look back and we can we see photographs and we say, oh, those are like that's that's art in a way that painting doesn't struggle with and sculpture doesn't and even architecture to some extent. Like contemporary practitioners aren't usually thought of directly as artists. I think that's changing a little bit 
Like that's one good thing that's come out of Instagram, mm. right? Is that there are people who are marketing themselves as artists who are photographers, but even a lot of them are like outside of the straight photography, right? They are Photoshop or digital painters or whatever. And so because of that, right, because we've never culturally like nailed down photography as an art form, it continues to exist in this kind of ambiguous space and the people who are doing it sort of move along with that. Some people are fighting harder for that than others, but photojournalism when it's contemporary is not really an art form. It is it is an art practice, but it's also like this practical tool, right? And practical photography, like the stuff that NASA does is not art. It is photographs to serve a technical purpose. You move far enough away from that source and then that's when it starts to become thought of as like these beautiful objects. But photography has always been on that line of of not being able to fully squarely fit in the art box because it is also a social and technical tool. Um, and so I think that that, you know, my educated guess is that that feeds into that sort of continuation of the cultural understanding of photography as something that is not beyond, but just outside of art. So all that is to say that when you have an organization like Magnum that exists solely for the purpose of uniting and giving some authority to individuals who exist in this realm, right? It becomes very difficult to nail something like that down if the people who are a part of it and are running it don't have interest in that. And if there's no direct benefit either. The people who are a part of Magnum don't necessarily need to unionize in the way that certain other laborers do, right? And they don't need to be represented in the same way that like screenwriters do, for example. So like it, it's sort of just this ambiguous thing in and of itself that becomes a problem when you run into what sort of sparked this conversation today, which is allegations against members of Magnum for misconduct. In this case, sexual misconduct. This episode was sparked by um, the news last year that Magnum had been not mishandling but not really handling at all some allegations around the photographer David Allen Harvey, who had an assistant bring sexual misconduct allegations against him. Some reporters started looking into this back in 2018, and it was becoming apparent that these conversations were being had much like they had been in Hollywood at the same time, right? And they were sort of being swept under the rug or kind of taken care of. The difference being that there wasn't that sort of bombshell that happened like with Harvey Weinstein around photography until about the end of last year when Columbia Journalism Review and Petapixels started reporting on these stories that had been sort of swirling but not really breaking through and had been, for all intents and purposes, really successfully kept under the rug around not only Harvey but also around others in Magnum who had similar allegations levied against them. And it turned out why this was such a big story in addition to sexual misconduct allegations 
and the handling of it was that it was quickly becoming clear that Magnum had no mechanisms for dealing with this. It had not been built into Magnum. There was no sort of authority, right? right? And because it was this decentralized cooperative, they could speak out against members and they can pressure members to leave, but they can't formally censure them. Remove them from the cooperative. Right. And there was some questions too around whether or not Magnum really had a solid documented code of conduct either, which links back to like it being a loose collective of individual entities, right? Um, who just agree to work together or agree to put their names on this, this charter. Having lacked all of that, Magnum didn't really have the tools that other entities have when these things come up. So on top of not dealing with it, right? And that sort of scandal was the additional scandal of even if they wanted to deal with it, they didn't have really any way to do it and had never addressed it. And that is particularly problematic in photography. And I think part of why this certainly got my attention and got the attention of some of my peers um, is these stories are rampant throughout photography just as they are in any other sector in the history of the Western world, right? Like there's this; these stories are not unheard of. They are not even surprising, which is really sad. But what is frustrating, I think, to me, and the reason why I wanted to sort of talk about all this on an episode, is because on one hand we have Magnum, which lacks authority over itself. It is designed that way, and it has its benefits for that, and it has been willfully designed that way because of those benefits, but there are downsides. But on the other side of it, because there isn't that authority and because it doesn't hold that cultural real estate, people don't know that this is happening. People don't know about photographers who are involved in this, right? And they don't necess- they wouldn't necessarily know if they were consuming a photograph by David Allen Harvey, for example, because we don't talk about photography especially of this kind, documentary photography and National Geographic, we don't talk about the photographers and the photographs together all the time, right? We, we sort of think of photographs as this, this separate thing. The truth, in a way. Right, yeah. It's like a problem in many ways, but unsurprising that it feels like there needs to be quote-unquote cultural rever- relevance with either the perpetrator or the one being affected by this act for their to feel like arms of pressure to exist to quote unquote deal with it. Like it needs to feel important before people care about it on a broader scale rather than just, you know, working through these systems of these systemic societal issues at large. Right. And it's notable, too, because this is not the first Me Too moment in the f- photographic world, right, since since that movement started. The one that I have been thinking about a lot because I used to teach from his photographs is Nicholas Nixon, 
who was teaching at Cambridge, I think. And he had, he had like a retrospective set up and he, he's one of those photographers that like photographers know, right? He did influential work around his family. He shot on a large format camera and, and took these like incredibly detailed snapshots of like his kids at the dining room table and out in the yard playing and like that sort of thing. Um, but he, his most famous work is the Brown sisters, which is his wife and her three sisters photographed once a year, every year. It's a really influential piece. A lot of people have seen it. It comes up in like contemporary art classes um, because it is like all, like almost the perfect example of how you can use photography in a unique way to talk about time, right? Um, it's this, this series of like 50 or 60 photographs of the four sisters in chronological order. They're all standing next to each other in the same order. And so you can see them age and it, it deals with lots of things under the service too, like, you know, aging and femininity and sexuality and, and how things change as we grow older and how we think about older members of society and younger people and what is beautiful in a photograph and all that. And then, and then he gets, Accusations of sexual misconduct, sexual harassment with female students of inappropriate assignments in his class and encouraging them to pose nude for him. And uh, he got suspended from his teaching position. They canceled his retrospective. And then, like, we stopped talking about it. I know that that happened because I was teaching on his work, I was teaching on the Brown sisters work and going back every semester and like looking it up and like doing that research. And then I go, Oh shit, he's, he is implicated in this. Right. I found out through Wikipedia though. And I follow art trades and, and I follow, um, photo trades and, and that sort of thing. And, and I am, I am not omnipotent, but it didn't come across my radar and it didn't come across any of my immediate peers either. One day we were all sitting around you know, working on, on our coursework. And I said, Oh guys, Nixon has, has been implicated, you know? And like, we had that conversation and it was news to all of us. So do you, I don't, A, did, was there repercussions beyond a, like a slap on the wrist for him within the photography world? If you know, and B, do you feel like because there's just this lack of general awareness, perhaps, people know they can get away with things like this? Well, I think when something like this happens, especially in photography, like the punishment is that you lose your teaching position. But if you are that enshrined in the canon, you don't get talked about as much, right? But your work is still important, and we run into that issue, right? Right. You know, like Nixon is still featured on the Frankel Gallery's website. He's he's still listed on Artnet. Like he's still out there and and people are still talking about the Brown sisters work. And that raises an interesting question of like is photography somehow has it somehow accomplished the thing that we're struggling most in art with detaching it from the creator? Yeah. 
the difference here being that Nixon is still alive, and if you buy one of his prints, like he still profits from it. You're actively supporting it. Yeah. Right. So, I don't know. Like, I don't really know what his punishment was beyond that suspension and and having his show closed. How these things usually go, I think, in almost any industry, is you have an apology after maybe denying it, right? And you you sort of recant that a little bit. You apologize in a wishy-washy way, and then you disappear for a while, right? And then you come back quietly. And then you come back. Um, and one dangerous thing about photography is that, like, because we don't talk about it in the same way that we talk about Harvey Weinstein, for example, who is, you know, the easy one to point to and is a very special case because of the power that he held, right? Right. But, you know, there's a reason why his name has become eponymous with all of this. But nobody has, like, that level of attention. Nobody has that level of influence that he did. And so, well, we won't forget what Weinstein did. It's much easier to sort of lose track of the other ones. And I also think that um, with something like Weinstein, his influence was more on other artists, Mm -hmm. uh, artists that people were familiar with, and he wasn't necessarily a creator himself. Whereas you take somebody like R. Kelly or Chris Brown, who has, who is a creator and has a long documented history of misconduct, sexual or otherwise, and then you still wind up facing those same issues of do we separate the content from the creator a little bit more than you would with Harvey Weinstein. The music world might be an easier comparative realm than movie production or movie producers. Right. I mean, the other aspect of this too is that culturally we are used to, to some degree, artists, especially white male artists in the fine art world being bad people, right? Mm -hmm. And so I wonder how much of that is just like a cultural numbness, right? That like at some point you after so many Picassos, right? Like you <laughs> sort of just accept that that is, that it, that is how it is. Like, you know, Chuck Close, whose art I love, had really serious allegations brought against him a couple of years ago. And, you know, but his, his work is still in galleries and like is still studied. And it's a tricky place too because... Where pop music, for example, is very much an in-the-now thing, right, and can often be forgotten after a while, right, after it loses that sort of cultural relevance, right, and and so they, artists within that tend to ride that roller coaster a little bit more directly, right, and you can nuke your career really quickly and really easily, and then yeah. you become irrelevant. In fine art, right, it is a slower-moving process, and it is, in addition to having that sort of cultural numbness that I talked about, like it being all backwards facing, as we've talked about on this podcast before, it becomes much easier to sort of do that work of, of disassociating the artist from the work. And that is important to do with people who are long dead, I think, because we have to talk about the influence that their work had on contemporary people along with that caveat 
of them being problematic. But when we are right on top of it, right, before these people really form the canon, before we know what photography is going to be important in 200 years, right, it becomes a little bit more important to be, like we have an opportunity right now to really shape that canon, I think is, is what I'm trying to say. Photography has only been around for, what, 250 years or so. It doesn't have a history. We are making that history right now. And the problem is that we are making it in the middle of this societal reckoning that is long overdue, and we are fighting it trying to benefit from the same sort of protections that other fine art has while also existing sort of outside of that realm. And so there becomes a need for one education around it and like really canonizing it as an art form in that real way and figuring out like what we think about it and what we want it to be, but also figuring out what we want that history to be in general. Like what are we willing to put up with moving forward? Cause we don't have to include all of these people in the canon. Some of them will stick around. Some of them will remain influential no matter how awful they are because that's how art works. But some of them are influential because they have been in the right place at the right time. Steve McCurry is not a particularly interesting photographer. He just knows the right people. And he has gotten the right work and he's been around. And I'm not saying that he's not hardworking and that he doesn't have some talent there, but like, I don't think that we need to talk about him <laughs> for another hundred years. So like starting to make those decisions, it's kind of the important next step, I think. So maybe, maybe it's not on like an art form industry wide level, but do you have any ideas or suggestions, maybe even just within the confines of Magnum of how they can approach being an important check to these kind of issues while still retaining the relative fluidity of structure. Part of it is just like talking openly about it. And with something like this, there is always that pressure to not rock the boat. I think that has been another thing that stuck with me is that I follow a lot of photographers on Instagram, right? Who are Magnum photographers, because that's what I want to look at on that app that I'm addicted to, right? Like that's what I want to be fed to me all day. Um, they aren't talking about it, are they? In large part, no, but some of them are like Pruiter, um, she made a statement about it, but they're also like trying to have their careers and they don't represent Magnum they're right. part of it. And in that indirect way they do, but they like, they don't get cut a paycheck from Magnum as far as I know. And is it mostly just female photojournalists talking about this? That is what I have seen. I don't, I don't want to say that for sure. Yeah. It's always bad to kind of lump everything together, but yep. right. I wish I could say I was surprised. Yep. Right. <laughs> what? Right. Well, and then it's a question of like, well, how many of the male members have these same skeletons in their closet and are mm -hmm. are just avoiding it? And how many people are just trying to make that living in an industry that's really difficult, which doesn't justify the behavior, but like you know, we all we all imagine ourselves as heroes and then imagine getting that big break 
and finding out that these things that are not surprising are in fact happening, if Magnum is damaged, then that symbol of success is also damaged. Yeah. That that can be really terrifying to somebody who has worked their entire life trying to make it in a really difficult industry. So how do we sort of address all of those things all at once? I don't know, you know, and, and, and is it, is it the members of Magnum's responsibility to address it? I would say yes, but you could see where the argument would be that it is Magnum's responsibility and, and they are the views and actions of others do not reflect on me kind of thing. It's just that everything gets measured against, right, the certain arm of legitimacy or the certain organization that lends legitimacy. So then it, it's trying so hard to not be the yardstick, but it is the yardstick inevitably for this industry. So everything is reflected and orbiting around that. Right. And part of the problem, too, is that there isn't anything else like Magnum. Mag- there is only Magnum. That is the only the only thing that exists on this level. If there were more Magnums, would there be less of this? Probably not, but maybe. And maybe we would see other ways of structuring this sort of thing that would make it easier to revoke somebody's status if it turned out that they were abusing their assistance, for example. But there isn't, and there isn't really any demand to, and I don't think that anybody really has the power to do so at the moment. It would it would take Magnum photographers breaking off from Magnum and forming a new collective, and then they would have to compete against a collective that has almost 80 years of history. You know, So it is sort of, as we keep finding in these situations, it's a damned if you do damned if you don't kind of situation where there are no good answers. The the other side to this is do we need Magnum? I don't I don't know that the purpose that it served in nineteen fifty is still the same purpose. Right. Even still exists. It's a different world and it is a relic of a bygone era, which holds a lot of power sort of conceptually and emotionally for a lot of us, but doesn't maybe hold so much power or importance in actuality. How does that feel like almost every system that exists for every (laughs) medium? It's like, it just is, so accept it, suckers. Right, I mean, (gasps) and I'm, you know, I imagine that that's how it's always been, but it feels, when everybody has the same access to the same information, broadly speaking, right, assuming that you have broadband internet which a lot of people don't but if you have if you can get somewhere that you can get access to the internet you can learn about all of this stuff Um, and you can you can teach yourself photography a lot of the history of photography is successful photographers making money off of their own names teaching people who want to be the next Ansel Adams or the next whoever we don't have that model anymore so much there are still people who spend way too much money to go to an Adams workshop or an Evans workshop or whatever, but we have other ways of learning about it too. Like most art programs have a photo program, not very well funded, but it's there, right? And 
we've also made cameras so easy to use and so ubiquitous that anybody can take an image too and yeah. publish it and sell it. So the world that Magnum was created for doesn't sort of exist anymore. And so now we have to ask ourselves, are we just, does this thing only exist for its ills at this point? And if so, why are we still kicking around with it? Yeah, and the longevity of the collective has made it so that it can't be replaced. It can't fix itself. Not only is it entrenched, but also it's inherently flawed and it can't deal with the issues of the current day and age. And as a result, it faces a lot of the same issues that a private company would face if they had a monopoly that was founded in the 1950s by a bunch of people who had a very different idea of gender than we currently do today. And <laughs> there's nothing there to check them and make sure that they are changing with the times, unlike a private company would today. So it's a situation, especially considering that this is a collective that is designed around capturing the lives of others and telling that truth to others. But they also don't have any mechanisms in place to reckon with the truths that they're hiding or not dealing with. It's just, it's <laughs> the irony of that. Yes. Oh, it's, yeah. It's so unreal. <laughs> you have hit on the great issue of truth and photography of, uh, what is truth when you are an outsider telling somebody else's story? Or when you are an insider telling your own story and when your medium relies on taking an imperceivable instant out of reality and using it to tell greater truths, mm -hmm. right? Like any art collective is going to be flawed in its form. I think part of the reason why Magnum gets away with, with what it does and, and has a reputation that it does is because it meets some old world ideas about what inclusivity is. Mm -hmm. If you scroll through the list of Magnum photographers, the majority of them are photographers from the United States. The vast majority of them are male. I think a majority of them are white or f are from Europe, right? Like it breaks down along the same lines, but they have members from other countries in a large enough number that it, that you look at it and you go, oh, that's really diverse. But if you like break it down, is it? It's a bunch of people telling the stories that we particularly care about here in the United States. It's the participation cookie for diversity. <laughs> right. And like I said before, like there are more female presenting Magnum photographers than there ever have been. That's a really low bar. It's sort of like when you talk about F65 and they had female members but we don't really talk about them beyond cunningham right like one of the issues with this medium is that because it is so contemporary it gets to ride those waves of contemporary inclusion and a lot of times that means that if you have one girl in the room you did it good job guys. you did it right if you have one member from taiwan you did it and it keeps us from having 
from having had the conversations of what does a really inclusive, like universally inclusive, truly inclusive group like this look like? And I find it really interesting because when I think of classic masculinity, I don't think of the arts. I think of building things and logic and brute strength and like all these other stuff, but creating things out of nothing or capturing images is by comparison, a much more feminine interaction with the world. But at the same time, photography being only only around for 250 years and photojournalism just kind of getting its start in the Civil War, you know, these came to fruition during times when gender identity was so wrapped up in women being uh, subordinates. And so it kind of seems as though, I can't speak for all artistic mediums, but it kind of follows this through line to where even though we are at a time when gender identity and gender politics is so drastically different than it was during the Civil War, there's still so many remnants that kind of find their way through the cracks and still makes it such a male-dominated sphere. And of course, one could argue that there is no such thing as a perfect system, but it makes it so that maybe not within my lifetime, inclusivity for the arts and especially in photojournalism may not be in the place where it needs to be in order to prevent things like this from being as rampant as they are, you know? Right. Weren't all these, most of these allegations about women being in supportive roles to these Titans that are men being their intern, being their, their big break in quote unquote exposure, being their assistant. So it's even just built into it all. Right. And, and that is a, particularly problematic reality in <laughs> someone agrees <laughs> a resounding yes that's a real problem in photography too is that it it is locked in this sort of apprenticeship system um, which allows older men to prey on younger people particularly women i know for a fact that i have missed out on opportunities because i have chosen not to go the route of apprenticing and the route of interning. And I'm a white guy, right? So like that, that only compounds for people who are of any other identity than myself. Yeah. Not everybody has, you know, privilege to be able to say no to things like that. Yeah. You know, and, and if this is the thing that you want to do, you're going to figure out how to do it. There, there's a whole conversation around the sort of predatory nature of these sorts of things and like how people f fall into those sort of situations by no fault of their own. But we as photographers have yet to really reckon with that in any meaningful way from what I've seen. Um, and we are still worshipping these titans who are still mostly men and who still move in these circles. And, and we... We'll put a coda on it and say, well, you know, is you know, end of his career, he turned out that he was actually a really bad guy. But like, why don't we lead with that? <laughs> and why don't we have a conversation about the folks that they stepped on to get there or the people who are right under the surface that, that need that recognition? Or 
but people like Francesca Whitman who who got the attention. You can argue whether or not her her art deserved it, but you know she got a lot of attention because she was a young, beautiful, tragic person before being a photographer. And we have a way to talk about her because she's a photographer. And we talk about her her art, right? We talk about her photographs, but we don't tend to talk about why we talk about it. And I think that that is changing, right? I think that as part of this, I think that the hopeful aspect of this coming out is that anybody is talking about it even if it's mm-hmm. not as mainstream as it should be. But it also just really underlines the fact that, like, one, we need art education, right? Like, Period. Right. If we, if we are going to be consumers of culture, we need to be educated about the culture that we are consuming. And we need to do that in a formal way. It is just as important as learning about government and about civics and about mathematics because it influences us and it influences how we consume the world. Um, so we need to be able to know what we're looking at and know how to consume it knowledgeably and ethically. Absolutely. And, and if we do that, if we, if we really make that effort to do so, it becomes a lot easier to talk about these things in a way that's productive and to, to bring them to the forefront and to ensure that they don't keep happening. Because the only reason that these things can happen is because the people that do them don't think that they're going to get caught, right? Right. Or they believe that the benefits to them far outweigh the consequences. And to this point, they've largely been right. It's like... Me, it's like education needs about like critical analysis and just I guess like dealings of morals need to be maybe be considered in a more tangible real way be like learn how to critically analyze by reading Mark Twain and you're like I don't give a shit about this this has nothing to do with what I'm experiencing so you're less likely to have buy it unless you're really into Mark Twain and you're just like oh god whatever so but <laughs> you know okay so that makes one of us who doesn't like Mark Twain <laughs> it was boring <laughs> and racist um, but <laughs> right if my AP lit class was like let's break down this Twitter I'm not saying this is how it should be but like let's break down the semantics of this Twitter beef <laughs> and how it implicates how we deal with the world because we Social media makes everything so much more visible and we can watch uh, structures crumble in front of our eyes and people can show their entire asses in front of our eyes and we can, more things can be done in the light. So let's learn how to navigate that better. Not for fun. Fun's the wrong word. But I think an interesting exercise is to, if we go back to Nicholas Nixon and we think about the Brown sisters who I'm not going, I'm not going to link to that work. Um, you can look it up on your own time. That work is important, right? Yes. I think I think that it is useful. I think that it is hugely influential, and I think that it is in a place where we cannot not talk about it. It has affected too many people and too many other works of art. So we're going to keep talking about it, and it's going to keep showing up in museums. So how do we, in a way that's useful, discuss that work, right? that that becomes the challenge and i think it's 
a valuable one, right? Like, like my answer to it is that, and what I try to do and when I teach is to, to bring up the work and talk about the work formally, right? And then start talking about the person behind it. And that creates a more, I believe, a more complex understanding of the work to begin with, right? Yes. It is this work that is celebrated as having a feminist angle to it. It is inherently feminist. It is capturing four women who are, when it begins, conventionally attractive, and they age like we all do. And they change in the ways that people do when they age. And they are all beautiful photographs from a technical standpoint. And it, it has all of these levels of really deep, important cultural context, right? It's important to look at. So how does that become complicated when you say, well, the man who took these photographs got busted for abusing his female students, allegedly? I don't understand why that has been so difficult, you know? It's just that extra level of complication, right? right? I don't know. It's just the easy thing of X person is feminist or is not. And the answer is never explicitly, you are a feminist. So A plus clear, you get the gold star. It is all your interactions with gender and the systems that oppress gender are inevitably complicated. Right. It, it is, it's the issue that plagues any conversation like this in that nuance gets lost, right? Always. There's that angle that it, it is very hard to talk about these issues that are very charged for good reason in nuanced ways. But it's also really hard to like see your heroes as flawed people whose morals might not line up with your own. And I think that we run into that too. I think that that is bringing it back to Magnum. I think that's part of the problem too, is that like we've been seeing this happen over and over and over again for a few years now, very publicly. But when a heroic entity collapses, it's really easy to just find reasons to not face that, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Hero worship is a really intoxicating thing. And bad in many ways. And, and very bad, right? We talked about that on the second episode. Yes, we did. As I'm saying this, like maybe part of the answer is figuring out a way to consume that media differently, right? Like, Without assuming, oh, B Billy Bob is the best photographer. So, oh my God, yes. I wonder if Billy Bob Thornton is a photographer. <laughs> right? I wouldn't doubt it. He seems like he has a bunch of medium format cameras just hanging out on his shelves, <laughs> you know? Just, just hanging around. Let's, let, we need to investigate this. Who is... Who's the actor that played the dude in The Big Lebowski? Oh, fuck. Yes. Um, Jeff. Jeff Bridges. Jeff Bridges. Jeff Bridges. Jeff Bridges put out a book of photography a couple of years ago. Oh, cool. Was it any good? It's really weird. He photographs with this really wide angle camera. Uh -huh. it, it's like a 180 degree camera. Oh. Or it might be like a 120 camera. Mm -hmm. But he... He photographs on film sets and, and he just, he's just been doing it forever. And he put out a book of all these pictures oh, of that's like, cool. you know, him hanging out with whoever, which is fun. So, oh. so Milo Ventimiglia is another person who, when I found out he does a lot of film photography, really surprised me. He's the guy from uh, this is us. And, Oh yes. 
Gilmore Girls. Gilmore Girls. Right. Yep. Heroes. Yeah. Nice. Guys, stars are people just like us. Yeah, they're side gigs. <laughs> Vin Diesel plays D&D. We're okay. So, what now? I, you know, we wish we had an answer, a panacea to all the societal ills. And the answer is we don't. And I don't think anyone will. Yeah, the people tuning in to, uh, to Meaning What, searching for those things, are going to be sorely disappointed. I'm sorry, we can't <laughs> fix everything. Not yet. I, I started this podcast as a place for nuanced conversations. Blah, blah. I it's always hard to have a conversation like this because there isn't an answer and I find myself at the end of it going okay now what like how do I end this conversation because the way that a podcast is structured it has to end and uh we have to we have to leave people with feeling like they didn't lose an hour of their time <laughs> dear listener I hope that you never feel that way uh, when you leave this podcast, but I don't know. I, it's, it's been really interesting to me talking to the two of you about this. This sort of thing is always really enlightening. And especially in the last year when we haven't really left the house and I haven't been in a classroom, you know, forever because it, it, it surprised me how quickly I forget that and not on purpose and not because not in any like narcissistic way but you just you just forget that people aren't plugged into all the same things as you are mm -hmm. right like oh yeah i forget that all the time it's truly upsetting yeah. honestly <laughs> <laughs> unless you're sean like it is always this surprising moment where you go oh not everybody cares about or should care about these things we can cut that out i don't have to single you out no you can keep it <laughs> Because it's true. Yeah, it's true. But then you have something like what's happening at Magnum that takes this kind of ubiquitous part of the world of photojournalism and documentary photography, and it all of a sudden gets connected to this much wider conversation that we've been having for years now and something that touches so many people's lives. But then we also have to discuss the ways in which this kind of behavior is being enabled and is being allowed to profligate in kind of these really weird and unchecked ways in a medium that isn't quite as culturally relevant to people as film or other mediums. So, yeah. And I think that for a lot of people, uh, moments like this can really be a, not a wake-up call, but like an opportunity to realize how much you actually consume, right? Like how much of these photographers you've seen and maybe you own books with their prints in them or you have a Ansel Adams calendar or whatever, right? Like we're all implicated and that's not a thing to despair about, but it is a sign that we all have an individual responsibility to put in that effort, especially in a world where we don't feel that this formal education is important, right? As long as we live in that sort of society, it is on us. And if that is a problem for you, maybe look into helping art educators shift that. But until then, like, and even after that, like, 
an individual's education is is on them and just because something is easier to separate from the individuals that are creating it doesn't mean that you have any less of a responsibility to to be aware of it and it also doesn't mean that you can't say enjoy the brown sisters series for example but you need to know the history behind it and you need to be honest about how you're engaging with it and what you know about it and when you find those blind spots educate yourself on them amen It's no Sam Studios. Well, actually, did I stutter?